I'm Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and this is the Theosophia Podcast, a platform for women's voices in theology. Today's round two with Kate Dugan. Kate is a doctoral candidate in systematic theology at the University of Aberdeen and the curator of the Bart Collection at Princeton Theological Seminary, where she also earned her Master of Divinity. In this episode, Kate and I get into her dissertation work on Paul's apocalyptic theology on sin and death. This conversation ties in nicely from the previous episode about Kate's encounter with the alt-right white supremacist groups in Charlottesville, where she wrestled with questions of death and darkness in the form of racism. Hope you all enjoy this rich theological conversation. I think this is a great segue into though what I want to talk about next with this your dissertation topic that I'm just infatuated with just reading <sighs> the little bit about that you sent me um but the idea of death yeah and I've always been fascinated and confused as a Christian why God came and died for our sins, but like there's still death and destruction and chaos and disease and pain and suffering. Yeah. Like what was the point? Yeah, sure. Right. And that we have to wait for him to come again. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I would love for you to just set up, you know, what you've been studying just to give some context. And then we could get a little bit deeper into what you've, what you're arguing, what you're thinking about, but I guess the Pauline New Testament apocalyptic understanding of death as more of a cosmic type thing and what's happening for Paul. Um, yeah, maybe just starting there. Yeah, sure. So I was introduced to Pauline apocalyptic theology when I was an MDiv student at Princeton. Um, mm-hmm. It was during I uh, met my friend, Rye, Sigelko, uh, who's a PhD graduate from Princeton. He's a pastor now of a Mennonite church in Minnesota. And uh, he's one of my best friends. And he he and I share a lot of the same theological concerns and convictions. And um, I was always drawn to apocalyptic because there was this kind of, there was this understanding of a, sh- of a struggle going on between um, God and, and the powers for the world. Uh, and that made sense to me. It really resonated deeply with me existentially, uh, with my experiences, and then with just reading Paul. It just it just made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's important to me that um, as a good Bardian, it's not just my experiences that are informing my theology, but I do think that um, there is an apocalyptic Paul Um I, yeah. I try to read scripture and that's important to me <laughs> yeah. um, to have my theology informed by what Paul says. And so within the Pauline apocalyptic conversation, so there's a new Testament conversation and then there's more of a theological um, systematic conversation that comes out of that. So um, it, it's heavily debated, but uh, within the new Testament Pauline apocalyptic conversation. You could probably start with Ernst Kaysemann, who was a New Testament student of uh, Rudolf 
Boltman, um, and he basically said that apocalyptic is the mother of all theology. Um, mm. And so he inspired a lot of people that came after him, uh, New Testament scholars like J. Lewis Martin, Beverly Gaventa. Um, uh, I'm forgetting so many names right now because you're asking me these questions and I'm going to kick myself afterwards <laughs> for not knowing some of these names. But thinkers along those lines who came after him um, and there's a there's a there's a history of apocalyptic thought that comes out of Princeton. Um, So anyway, the New Testament apocalyptic conversation, it's debated about what apocalyptic means, but in a sense, you could argue that apocalyptic is centered around some sort of notion of struggle between God and the powers or God and uh, forces that work against God. So there's this, struggle between um, these two uh, powers, so to speak. Well, I don't want to put them on equal playing field, but there is a kind of struggle between God and the anti-God powers, which um, from a Pauline perspective would be known as sin and death. Um, And those powers work against the purposes of God in this world. Mm -hmm. And so all of Humanity is basically caught up in these forces, so to speak, of sin and death that enslave us. And sin gives way to uh, death, which is a which is a power that reigns supreme in this world and defines this present age. Um, and so, I've always been drawn to that because it seems like um, it's it's always been very difficult for me to be a Christian and to confess um, Christian hope because in, in fact, Easter is very difficult for me. <laughs> mm. I see on social media, everybody saying that there's this resurrection that happened, that death has been conquered. And then you go on Twitter and there's uh, another, um, there's another person, there's another black man who's been killed by the cops. There's another war. There's another famine. Um, another school shooting. There's another lately. school shooting. Yeah, there's mm. there's just everything in our world witnesses yeah. to the opposite of what we confess as Christians. And we yes. can say, oh, well, we believe this by faith. But I don't know. There's just something that's so unsatisfying about that because I want to experience that hope yeah. In the flesh, I want there to be an embodied encounter with that hope such that um, there is no suffering, there is no death. It isn't just this kind of like almost Gnostic confession that we have in faith that Christ has overcome death. No, I want death to be overcome yeah. in, an, in an actual sense such that death is no longer so powerful that it can manifest itself in prisons, which uh, Mm. I have become very, um, I have seen the prison system face to face. It has, it has, um, it has become an intimate part of my uh, life in the past year as a family member has been imprisoned. Um, Mm. I want to see people freed in an, in an actual sense, not in just a, 
spiritual right. sense. So anyway, Christianity has always become, it has always been difficult to me. And so it's been, do I just become somebody who um, basically calls BS on this whole concept of being a Christian or um, is there something much more profound that's going on within Paul that perhaps has been neglected in the past? And so the thing that I like about the apocalyptic conversation that I've been reading is that it really does pay attention to the power of death that's at work in our world, even after Jesus was raised from the from the dead, and that the promise of Christian hope the the center of Christian hope is the promise that God will raise the dead. Um, I don't know what that looks like exactly. Most people who confess, I have a very literal understanding of heaven and um, that we're all going to be holding hands someday in, with, in, in this place with like golden streets. I don't know if that's, I don't know what it literally looks like, but I know when I read Paul, there's an outstanding promise that there is a new creation in which God and the world will dwell at some point and that death will no longer be the power that reigns and that the coming new creation will be defined by life and will be defined by um, there being no more death. And to me, um, and that bodies will actually be raised. I mean, Paul talks about the resurrection of the flesh. And that is so important to me because, I mean, that's what we confess as Christians, right? That mm-hmm. Jesus has scars and that Jesus is actually raised from the dead and that Jesus has a body. And um, I think that there's something really profound about confessing this absolute um this incredible thing that we have hoped that someday God is going to be the God who raises the dead and who uh, basically um, resurrects flesh and gives us new life in a world that isn't as God forsaken as this one is now. So Mm -hmm. sorry, that was kind of a long tangent, but um, that's where I've been going with, uh, with my dissertation in the last three years and um, I'm still figuring it out because it's really difficult to talk about death because you've never experienced it. And if you do, you're not going to come back to talk about it. (laughs) It's super difficult to, to write about something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so it's difficult to define what it is. And then I think also people have a very literal conception of death. I don't think that I think that death is definitely the end of life. And I think that's a critical part of what it means for Paul to talk about death. But I think that death manifests itself also in various forms that we see um, in, in all kinds of ways that basically lead to people suffering and to people, um, you know, not having life the way that God um, came to give all of us. The other thing I will say, the reason that I've been really attracted to the apocalyptic conversation is because it kind of neutralizes the distinction between the church and the world such that what God does for us in Christ is for the cosmos 
and not just for the church, so to speak, or not just for, for people who come to confess faith in this particular, uh, in this particular message or this particular act. And so I find that really attractive because, um, and I, I don't know, I, I always find, I, I've always found faith to be a miracle for me, especially since everything around me witnesses to the opposite of what I confess. So the fact that I still have faith, I find that to be miraculous at times. Hmm. And so I remember when I, um, when I lived in New York and I would be on the subway and there would be so many different people that came onto the subway who clearly had different faiths and they were different ages and genders and races and, um, and all kinds of different things, class. And I remember thinking the only real difference between me and the person sitting next to me who might not identify as a Christian is, is not, is not, um, it's not that that person's going to go to hell and I'm not. It's just that for some reason that person, God has not um, revealed God's self to that person in such a way that that person is, um, has has faith. Um, and so I've always, I don't know if that makes sense, but um, I think to me the difference between me and the person who doesn't confess to be a Christian um, it's just for, for some reason, um, that person has, has not come to faith. And I don't, I don't know if that has eternal consequences, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I just don't see, I guess I just think that it's the greatest mystery is why some people believe and some people don't. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't necessarily think that that has eternal consequences. I think that um, Paul is clear that the entire world will be reconciled unto God at the end of the age um, because um, the final word will be uh, Christ being victorious over all that separates us from God. And so I think that all people will be reconciled unto God at the end of the age. Maybe you should edit this part out because I, <laughs> I'm not explaining this as, as well as I had hoped I would, but um, I do, I am very attracted to the apocalyptic kind of cosmic perspective because there isn't this radical distinction between the church and the world that you see in so much of um, yeah. the Christian conceptions of the church. Yeah. In fact, my understanding of the cosmic perspective of God's work makes it difficult for me to make sense of what church even is mm. um, because of the sense that I think that um, mm. I think that all people have been chosen within God. And I think that all people are going to be reconciled unto God. Um, mm. because I don't think that anybody is going to be, um, not delivered from the power of death at the end of the age. So. <sighs> wow. You just blew my mind wide open. <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to sleep at all tonight. Kate. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in the yeah. best way but yeah i mean i don't know if you saw the other day my dad was freaking out he said the pope said there's no hell the pope said there's no hell i was like what are you talking about did, did you see this i didn't no i've been trying to get off social media a bit yeah, lately i did I, not can you tell me what what happened yeah let's let me pull it up pope francis 
says no hell. Oh wow, uh, that's that seems like good news to me. <laughs> I was like, you know, what do we really know about hell? Like, it's always been a very exaggerated thing, anyways. Um, yeah. Let's see. What does he say here? Uh, Francis was quoted as saying of those who die in a state of mortal sin. So something that's like super bad, like uh, let's say a white person lynching a black person. That seems like a mortal sin to me. Um, They are not punished. Those who repent, obtain God's forgiveness and take their place among the ranks who contemplate him. But those who do not repent cannot be forgiven, disappear. A hell doesn't exist. The disappearance of sinning souls exists, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Hmm. And I guess the catechism affirms the teaching of hell and its eternity, including eternal fire. And the chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God. That that sounds more like the Catholic doctrine, but. Yeah. I, uh, well, it's complicated because, uh, <laughs> it's very, very complicated because I do think that there's a tension within Paul and there's a tension within scripture. Uh, but mm-hmm. I kind of rest everything on this. So in Romans 5, 12 through 21, Paul sets up the Christ Adam typology, I guess you can call it. Yeah. Um, and he basically talks about how the effects of, Adam's sin are a hundred percent such that um, all are judged and that all are going to die because Adam sinned. And then he talks about Christ and the effects of Christ. And there's this one line where he says, how much more? And it's always blown my mind because I don't know how you can have an excess of a hundred percent such that the effects of what Christ has done are more than the effects of what Adam has done because nobody would deny that the effects of Adam are universal. Everybody dies. Everybody sins. Nobody would dispute that. When you come to the other side of the analogy that, um, that Paul is making, he talks about how much more, and it's always blown my mind. It's like, how can you have an excess of a hundred percent? But beyond that, the whole point, of the typology or the analogy, so to speak, is that Paul is trying to show that Christ is victorious over right. Adam. And yeah. so if, if the effects of Adam aren't overturned in a universal sense, in a completion, in a completion, is, yeah. yeah, Adam becomes victor. Right. And, and so to me, to say that there's one human soul or there's one person who's not reconciled unto God um, means that Adam has won at the end of the day, because yeah. you could never say that there's one person who's not going to die, who, who doesn't have the um, the effects of Adam's sin upon their life, as Paul says in Romans 5, 12 through 21. So that's always just been, there's a great theological point in that, that I just cannot surrender to that Christ has to be victorious mm. over Adam or we have no hope in yeah. my, in, in my view. And the other thing is, is <laughs> this is a controversial point, but if you see um, sin and death as powers that enslave us um, as 
uh, one of my New Testament scholars says, uh, sorry, as one of my New Testament profs said to me once, she said, um, it's striking that Paul does not call the Romans to repent because how can you repent of something that you're, you're enslaved to? Slaves mm. cannot free themselves. They can only mm. be they can only be freed, mm. right? Oh, and so, yeah. And so, one of the interesting things about um, understanding the powers of sin and death th- as um, as those things that enslave all of us is that um, is that if you really are if you really are a human on this, on this earth, you are enslaved to these, to these powers. And, um, I'm trying to gather my thoughts. You might need to edit this part out, but, um, you are enslaved to these, to these powers. And, um, and like, there's this kind of compassion that you start to have for people who, um, who we think deserve to go to hell. Mm. Um, when you start to look at those people and you think, mm. wow, like look at how much those people have been overtaken by the power of darkness. And the other thing is that usually people who go on to be oppressors have been oppressed themselves. And I'm not trying to get to negate personal responsibility in any way, shape or form. I'm talking about on the very individual concrete level of m- encountering a human person who. Um, who we would say is beyond redemption or beyond hope and should go to hell, you have to wonder like how much the power of darkness and death has overtaken that person's life such that they can commit the things that they're doing. And don't they stand in need so much more of God's freedom and God's redemption than those Mm -hmm. people who are called Christians and who are pious and who think that they're going to be going to heaven because um, of their faith in God. I mean, aren't the people who, are the absolute um, darkest among us, those who stand in need of freedom the most, you know? So that's kind of how I've um, conceived of heaven and, and hell at, at the past couple of years and how there's a real theological point at stake when you say that at the end of the day, Adam is the victor and that, um, and that his effects will always have eternal consequences. There's just mm-hmm. too many problems in that for me personally, as somebody who's, mm-hmm reformed oddly enough (laughs) wow i feel like you just preached a sermon (laughs) yeah i'm sorry (laughs) no no like praise be to god that was fantastic yes well thanks so much for talking it's been really a pleasure to talk about some of these things so yeah i think this is really good stuff um this like i said has always fascinated me about the just the theology of the church and, and what's the point, you know, cause it, it's very difficult to see, um, that Christ has, has conquered death. It's very difficult to understand what that means because it hasn't literally happened. Yeah. Um, in our material existence on earth, like, it's just, how do you, it, we, we can't make that walk on the, like, it's, it's hard to put that into play. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here and and act like that and treat others like that. I yeah. think the most helpful thing to me is a, a priest of mine once said, you know, Sarah, you have to look at everyone as a child of God. Yeah. Um, even people you don't like or who are oppressing you or whatever. And it's it's a more positive way to equalize everyone. Obviously, yeah, death does. It's something we all 
have in common, but uh, so is that we were made in God's image. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's always been a challenging thing for me to think about theologically. Yeah. I do want to say very quickly, I, I don't, um, I don't want to completely neutralize the line between oppressor and oppressed. I do think that there are people who stand on the wrong side of history. Um, uh, so I think that that's important to maintain. Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of particularity inside of my cosmic vision of God's redemptive work that I don't quite know how to work out, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to seem as though I'm I'm saying that everybody is the oppressor and the oppressed. I I think that there is truth to that, but I still think that we we have to have firm lines about, you know, what is darkness and what is not. I mean, there's, I mean, I stood face to face with white supremacists who were clearly um, oppressors and I don't want to water that down in any sense. And, um, and I want to say that um, there are people who are clearly oppressed because of their skin color, because of their sexuality, things along those lines. So um, it's just how to kind of, how to, um, how to work out the dialectic between that that cosmic and that particular perspective that I haven't quite figured out yet. And if I do, I'll probably be very rich someday. But <laughs> until then, <laughs> I'll still struggle with uh, my PhD. So. Well, I mean, you could figure it out. I don't think you'd get rich, though, because I don't think people like touche. <laughs> you, you know, you I probably like, wouldn't like, care anyway. No, like <laughs> I. I mean, I would care, but you know, like that, that theology, even if you figured it out, like it would be too rich and too meaningful. People don't do like the masses don't care for complex theology. Yeah. It's easier to say, fuck those guys. They're going to hell. And if you do this, you're going to go to hell and, oh, I'm going to go to like, it's easier to have these very binary systems. Yeah. Um, yeah and just one one last thing I, you know it it really does sadden me the kind of uh separation between like the the theological academy and the world i mean there's a huge chasm between those those two things um i moved home to the heartland of pennsylvania <laughs> trump land um and so i've come face to face with just you know um, everyday problems and um things that i wasn't exposed to when i was in academia or when i lived in New York. Um, but the thing that I find really interesting about apocalyptic is it, it really does draw me into, um, very concrete issues. And so I can talk to my mom and dad about these questions that I'm, that I'm, that I'm asking. Um, so I don't want them to seem too obscure, too abstract. I think that a lot of the questions that I, that I ask are about as concrete as you can as you can get in some senses. And I think that's so important um, to really ask ourselves, like, why the hell are we doing this? And what, and how is this meaningful? And why should anybody care? And I think that those are questions that theologians need to ask time and time again. And if they can talk to their mom, they can talk to their neighbor, they can talk to the average person about it because that's when it becomes meaningful. You know, not if you get published in a journal or you get tenure or anything like that. What, what matters is if it means something to the average person's life, you know? Yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're right. And I think that's what draws me more to priesthood now than uh, the doctorate. 
Yeah, I, f- I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> You're in the trenches now wishing you were in the church, I bet. No. Some, some days? <laughs> um, no, I, I, ha- I don't really have too much of a draw to become a part of um, clergy or, or church staff or something like that. I really always wanted to go into nonprofit work or into politics, mm, but um, yeah. I realize that has its own, you know, problems and things like that. So, sure. but I'm trying to work that out. Yeah. yeah. So, well, you do great work as a theologian and we need your work and it's very important. Thanks again, Kate, for sharing your work with us and pushing me in particular to think more deeply about the forces of sin and death that are alive in this world and what they could teach us about God and ourselves living in community with one another. Join us next week for a conversation with Caroline Leitner, a nurse practitioner who has an MDiv and NP from Vanderbilt University. We're going to get into how her divinity degree informs her work as a healthcare professional. And as always, Please take the time to rate and review Theosophia on iTunes and visit us at theosophiapodcast.com and theologycorner.net. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Peace.